0: These microphones feel like make me feel like I have to sing the intro or something. Like I feel a, one hand, yeah. a bit
1: like Adele. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't you always though? You're the Adele of the Australian literary <laughs> world. Episode of Cisteria, uh, where we focus on women's experiences as creators and consumers of arts and culture. I'm van Schild. I'm Veronica Sullivan. Um, and we're the hosts of Sisteria, which is produced by Izzy Roberts-Or. Uh, today we have the excellent Hannah Kent on but before we get into grilling her uh, I thought we'd kind of talk about and introduce the podcast a little bit. So Izzy and I have been talking about this for a little while um, via the re Izzy is the producer of the re-readers as well, executive producer, that is. And when Dion and Sam, my co-hosts at the time, were away, we decided to get an all-women panel in. So we had um, Ev from Pikelet, the musician, and Brodie Lancaster, the all-around amazing critic, cultural critic. Uh, and that kind of spurred us on to make it a more regular thing. And that's when we got... Ronnie on board. So Yay. do you want to talk a little bit about kind of your background and how you got involved in this and what you
1: want from Sisteria? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a relative podcast um, virgin, but I've had a few since <laughs> on the Rereaders, readers which have been such great fun. Um, but obviously we're all friends and we all talk about feminism and about, you know, women's art and, and we all love and, and adore um, the amazing creative work being... Uh, produced by Australian women at the moment. Um, and so I work for the Stella Prize, um, which is a major literary award for Australian women's writing. Hannah Kent, short, former shortlistee. <laughs> um, and, and you know, and, and I'm also involved with the Feminist Writers Festival. And so these are just natural things that are exciting and, and I think always um, worthy of more discussion. So when Steph and Izzy, when you approached me and, and said, we're, we're doing this thing, we'd like you to be part of it, it was like this gift this amazing gift and this really exciting um, opportunity. First episode, you say that now, gift. Yeah, <laughs> all right, we'll see by the end. We'll see by the end.
0: So I, for me, I think I really want Sisteria to be as much of an open dialogue with the listeners and obviously the guests that we have in and obviously you and our producer as possible. So um, we have a Twitter page where our website's going to be up soon. We've, you can always email us. I think it's SysteriaPodcast at gmail.com. So we want you guys to tell us what you want to hear Um, We also have a section towards the end, Arrogant Arts, where you can ask questions that we can respond to. So uh, it's very much about it being kind of a push-pull. I don't think any of us are pretending that we're authorities on anything. It's about being inclusive and open, um, as inclusive and open as possible, I think.
1: Mm, And just, like, kind of recognising that often there are barriers um, that spring up, in particular for women, to access various kind of... Um, areas of, of you know culture and society and, and trying to break those barriers down. Absolutely
0: um, and we're not going to pretend that as I said before we're any experts or anything but um, that in itself will kind of I think hopefully open it up to for people who maybe suffer from anxiety or imposter syndrome or the like that you know you're not alone, we're not alone because that's what I kind of feel about the arts and literary community when you have a few drinks with a few people particularly the women it kind of all comes out but I think we should probably get onto poor Hannah Kent, who we've shoved aside. <laughs> I'm okay, I'm having a lovely time. Yeah, just, loves- here. just watching us <laughs> sing into the microphone. Um, so our first kind of, I guess, section, I guess. What, what am I calling it?
1: Segment? Segment.
0: That's the word that I'm looking for over the podcast. We're going to call um Spotlight. It's about shining the spotlight on a particular guest who we have coming in. Today is Hannah. Hannah is a writer from Adelaide. Her first novel, Burial Rights, which came out in 2003, has been translated into 28 different languages, which is insane, and shortlisted for a shit tonne of awards. That's the, official, <laughs> that's the <laughs> official title. It's not official from her bio. That was my editorial edition. Uh, it won the ABIA literary fiction book of the year a bunch of others i it just keeps going it's line after line after line <laughs> uh the second her second novel the good people is published and it's come out now in australia and new zealand and then next year is that right in internationally
2: yeah so february next year for the uk and ireland and then i think probably sometime anytime from august onwards next year for the us
0: crazy so Ooh. you've been touring a lot with the book coming out here. Yeah, for
2: the past six weeks or so, which has been great. Um, First of all, it's it's really, really lovely just to be out in the world. I feel like I've just, (laughs) with this second novel, there was so much of me just being at home with my cat, getting cabin fever and doing really, you know, quite fast turnarounds on edits. So now to finally have it done. And to be able to go out in the world and meet readers and speak with booksellers, it's been pretty incredible. It's been mm. a pretty nuts six weeks, though.
1: Well, my impression of your um, work style has always been that you're very diligent and that you do kind of treat it as a job. And, and do, do you – is that how you do it? Do you go away and, like, sit down in your office and do it as a work? With the mean? cat, obviously. With the cat, yeah. yeah with the cat <laughs> and the and dog, the dog yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, it has been. And I think that's probably um, something which – became really necessary during the writing of Burial Rites. I mean, that was written as part of a a thesis, really, for a PhD. So I had a deadline for that, Mm. for that what I thought was just going to be, you know, a manuscript. Um, And there was, I kept on putting it off, basically, while I was doing my PhD until I I realised that the only way I was going to meet my deadline was to set aside time for it every single day and treat it like a nine to five job. And I also had the luxury of being able to do that. Mm. I know lots of people don't have that I don't have any kids, I don't really have any other responsibilities. Cat and dog, excuse me. Well that's true. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that they're <laughs> at the level of kids, but they're
0: yeah, I'm a double dog owner as any rereaders, <laughs> listeners will know. Um, and I'm happy to continue talking about pets, but possibly we should talk about your process
2: a bit more. Well, you know, they're actually a big part of my process. They keep me sane. But um you but yeah, that. so I I basically just Started having sort of a regular time slot to work, but also found that I worked better writing to a particular word count. And that was to stop myself from getting into a bit of an edit loophole, mm. where I just kept on working on the same paragraph and ended up with a great paragraph and no book. So I would start by um, basically just trying to write a thousand words a day. And that's something that worked out for me. And I realised that momentum and getting that terrible, really terrible first draft down was was what I just needed to do to, to basically finish something. So when it came to the second book, I thought, right, just got to be smart about it, treat it like a job, um, be disciplined because you so rarely feel inspired as well. Mm. Yeah. How was,
0: did you have any second book syndrome with the whole thing? Because obviously oh, like, yeah. Burial
2: Rights was insanely popular. Excellent
0: book. I know so many different people from different walks of life have read it To from my old English teacher to, like, <laughs> I see a bunch of people in bookstores and I get, like, proud of you. Oh, it's amazing. Um... It was such a success and then you go on and obviously you've got a second book deal, hugely popular. How was that? Look at your eyes. It's was terrifying. Just- yeah, it was <laughs>
2: terrifying, of course. It was, you know, I'm really human and it was, the success of Burial Rights was wonderful and I'm still hugely grateful for it, of course, but it did mean that I had a few really anxious months where I was thinking far out. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast yet, but that was not the words I yeah. oh, went yeah, my swear mind. For it. I was like, holy fuck, how do you write a second novel, especially when you know that there are people there who will read it? Whereas previously, you know, four people, two examiners, my parents, they were probably the only ones going to read it. And so I, um, and it did impact me. It made me really doubt, I guess, my ability. And it's also one thing to come from... I toured basically for three years with burial rights, mm. you know, intermittently. But you spend so long talking about a finished object. You're talking about something which has gone through 14 drafts and been edited and now been published and is polished. You're reading from this work. And then to come from that and go back to the blank page and realise once again how terrible you can and maybe you necessarily need to be when you write. That was a bit of a nervous moment for me. But in the end, I sort of had to give myself a bit of a talking to and think, well, First of all, my fear of not doing anything is greater than the fear of doing it badly. Mm. And secondly, it's actually a wonderful gift to have a readership. I mean, what a, what a privilege that is. Um, so stop stop complaining, <laughs> stop stressing out and just write for the same reason that you've always been writing, which is for the love of it. It's tough though because it's a, quite
0: a solitary gig, obviously, yeah. writing and you do get in your own head oh, a I, lot. A lot, yeah. yeah. How did you kind of overcome that other than being like, I have to sit down and have a routine and do stuff. Were there other kind of external factors or internal factors? Um, did you suffer, like you said, touched on the anxiety that came along? Mm. How, how did you deal with that kind of stuff?
2: I, uh, first of all, I probably have to give a shout out to my wonderful family and my partner. Having that support, having people who believe in you when you don't is really, really important even if it's just to go back and have those little moments of reassurance from them, even if you don't necessarily believe them, they're just (laughs) lying to placate you, it's still good. It's still so important, I think, to have support. And I know there are writers out there who really lean on their writers' groups or Mm -hmm. they lean on their friends or they just need to have their people who rally behind them. So you need that little chorus of enthusiasm. So that was really important to me. Um, But also I think it doesn't make it easier, but I think I've recognised now that self-doubt is just – and fear – is just a part of my process and i think i put it down to the fact that when you're creating something you're necessarily working in an environment of uncertainty because you don't have any guide you don't have any direction you're you're making something up mm. there's no way of knowing if it's right or wrong or if it's going to work you just got to go ahead with it and i think understanding that and then also knowing that you can trust in process and just acknowledge that if you get a thousand words down every single day you are going to end up with a manuscript which isn't going to be published in that first draft state you're going to have opportunities to rewrite it to redraft trusting in that even in the days where you think i had days where i thought i'm i'm going to be writing this book till i'm 50 i'm Mm. never going to be able to do it it's going to be terrible but just keep doing it just keep showing up
1: Mm, i'm interested in actually asking you about the good people and um the kind of similarities or the, or the parallels that with burial rights in terms of, you know, the the era, the 1820s, mm. um, and these, like, you know, these really cold kind of rural areas <laughs> in, yeah. in um, Iceland, in, bur- in burial rights, and Ireland, in the good people, like, what draws you to, like, do you see these similarities, or does it feel like a different world to you, that you wanted to shift your focus to something really different and kind of enter a new space, but... Were there also kind of links between the two books for you as well? It's funny, I have um I was I've been mentioning
2: my friend who is one of those just brutally honest, quite blunt people that we all need in our lives. And she's always just she just teases me mercilessly for writing you know, books about miserable people in really cold places. (laughs) And I keep on referring to her comment and now I think that's something which is really kind of pulled out as a connection between my two books. But it's much more coincidence than design. I mean, the setting, the kind of cold setting, it happens because the first... Well, with Burial Rites, it was the character of Agnes. It was this Mm -hmm. elusive historical figure. For the three people who haven't read Burial Rites,
0: Um, do you want to kind of give an overview, a plot synopsis of both both Yeah,
2: sure. Well, with... With burial rights, that all kind of came from when I was an exchange student in Iceland and I lived very close to the site of Iceland's last execution, which I inevitably heard about. And it was a woman called Agnes Magnusdottir who was beheaded on January 12th in 1830 for her role in a double murder, the stabbing murder of two men and the fire that attempted to sort of burn their bodies and hide the evidence. And when I first encountered that story when I was in Iceland, you know, I was 17 years old, um... I was really struck by the way in which she was very much represented as someone who was unequivocally evil, mm. someone who was sort of the Lady Macbeth stereotype, scheming behind the scenes, was probably scorned by the man. She ended up, you know, co- you know, collaborating with two other people to kill. She the, she was given no ambiguity, no complexity. I couldn't find the the you know human face on her, whereas mm. I could with the other people in this story, which is really well known in Iceland. So. It wasn't like back then and there I decided to write a book about her, but I just couldn't forget about this woman. And then um, when I came to do my honours degree, I started to write kind of really bad verse novel about this woman. And that then turned into a novel that I did as part of that PhD. So, but I was very much coming from a position of, writing out of research, so trying to access biographical records, censuses, parish, things like that, find the real Agnes Magnus dotter, you know, behind this stereotype that I kept on coming up with. Um, mm. And it was in the process of researching that book that I actually encountered the true story, which was the basis for the good people. I had to translate so much Icelandic, so much, so many Icelandic sources into English. about. You translated which is so that. amazing. Yes. <laughs> was, Drop
1: that in there. It was
2: so laborious. <laughs> so I speak a really kind of... I kind of have a mediocre fluency. I've gotten so rusty from when I lived there. But it's one thing to sort of be able to converse with people and another thing to translate really kind of old documents, Dense text. Mm, yeah. So I'd have to – my process was just really boring. I just had to translate so many documents and then – and only then would I realise if they were going to be useful to oh me. Oh, my God. And one day I just kind of had enough and I thought, oh, my God, I just want to read something in English um, <laughs> just for ease of understanding. So I went to the library at the university and I found a whole bunch of old British newspapers and my thinking, which was pretty piss poor, I knew I wasn't going to find anything, <laughs> but I thought, well, if I read a whole bunch of, um, like, crime pages, sometimes they commented on overseas capital punishment, things like that. Maybe they'll mention Agnes Magnus Dotted. And, of course, I didn't find anything. But as I was reading these articles, I did come across this fascinating little story about a woman called Anne Roach who was described as being of advanced age. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she could have been 40. I <laughs> But um, in 1826, who had been accused of a really serious crime and her it wasn't so much the accusation or the charges that had been brought against her which fascinated me because I was encountering these sorts of stories you know, all day. It was her defence. She described herself as a fairy doctress and said she couldn't be held accountable because she was only trying to banish a changeling Now, I knew what a changeling was. A changeling is like a fairy imposter. The fairies come and abduct someone in their family and to try and swindle us, they leave a likeness in the place. But I'd always heard of changelings, as part of also Scandinavian folklore, as being very much of the folk stories. They were stories. They weren't things that actually happened. And yet here was this amazing kind of, I don't know, it was just more of a... they didn't really go into it in the article, but there seemed to me so much there. Here was something where the folk story actually intersected with real life Reality, in this incredibly yeah. tragic, incredibly bizarre way. And, of course, they were portraying this old Anne Roach as basically being an old, ignorant peasant woman. And, um, yeah, I was just fascinated by her particularly more than the story and wrote down the newspaper article in my notebook. And then many years later, when Burial rights was being acquired by publishers, I was asked if I had a second novel in mind. And I thought, well what can sustain another three years of really tedious book, like research? What <laughs> That's in I? English. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, and then, um, and so I thought, well, yeah, and Roach, I think I'd like to know what actually happened there. But the process for this book was entirely different. I am. Um, I did set out to try and find as much as I could in the records, try and find biographical information on this old woman, and in the end I found only one other newspaper Mm. article. So, Is
1: that, I mean, you've talked a bit about, in both cases, that you're doing this historical research about women, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. Is it there a dearth of information about women particularly, and, and, you know, particularly like poor women or women in rural areas? Mm. Is it really hard to kind of dig that information out? Do these lives kind of get lost? And if so, is that what you're trying to do? Like trying to find a connect with these people
2: yeah absolutely I think um, you know I, I really believe and I've said this before I really believe that many writers are drawn to what is not there mm. you know we want to know why I think certain things are not said or not mentioned what's in those gaps and the silences um, and for me the lives of women but particularly poor women as certainly you, f- you find so little representation mm. in historical records um, and similarly with poor men but I think to a greater extent with women um, and this is I guess even more so when you're looking for stories which have women narrating them, or you basically look for women narrating their own stories mm. or describing their own experiences. There are many. In the case of I in Iceland, it's actually once I sort of turned to research, there were a lot of there was a lot of information there because Iceland has this sort of incredible. They just have preserved so many records, and they used to have this wonderful practice of priests. Going out to farms every winter and speaking with every member of the household and writing their age and their character and their level of literacy. And you've got all of that information there, so you can draw certain connections. But in the case with Ireland, because of, I guess, the way in which the English have also come in and changed place names and recorded things in English, which were completely different in Irish, I found it a lot harder to navigate. Oh, that would just be a mess. But in both cases, you see, (laughs) it was a mess. But in both cases, you do see a real. Just, just an absence of particular kinds mm-hmm. of narrative, and I think a lot of it has been made about women in history. But I would also, I think, poverty is crucial. Mm. I think when people, particularly who are illiterate themselves, yes. as my characters were, you have no means of really trying to understand the lives that they lived and what they believed. It's all hearsay, or it's all coloured through various lenses of prejudice. Mm. It's so interesting.
0: So you talked a bit about just then. You actually no. I'm just going to stop that. I had no segue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so obviously you're interested in stories about women, women in poverty. Do you have particular influences through, you know, your life, your reading life before you were like, I am a writer. Did you, <laughs> was there any one or any stories in particular that stuck with you through childhood um, or even now? Like who, who influences you most in your work the most?
2: That's a good question. I think there was probably a novel and a writer who really influenced uh, burial rights, both my interest. In that particular kind of topic, and also it influenced me in a, in, a, in terms of creative process, and that was Margaret Atwood's Alias Grace, and I think there are so you know I'd make no, I pretty much just copied Alias Grace. Let's face <laughs> it, so I'm pretty open about that. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, but I was really interested in what she was doing in terms of sort of really mining that ambiguity of the of the feminine, you know, the female criminal in a historical context. Um, but in- at- Atwood's such a fucking legend. Like oh, I yeah. always get
0: freaked out every time I open another Atwood to read and there's just all of those like previously published by Atwood and it's literally like a novel in itself. It's
2: it's, so- she's incredible. Yeah. Title she's upon title upon title. <laughs> I've had like these funny run-ins with Margaret Atwood um, none, none of which I can be proud of. <laughs> but I remember once watching her at Adelaide Writers Week which was the one and only time I fainted in public and I was wearing a dress. Connected? Was so overcome. <laughs> <laughs> I came to, to the, like, the sultry over tunes of Margaret Atwood's voice, while being, you know, like having my dress shoved down by a bunch of <laughs> lovely old ladies, and the second time was in uh, when I was at Edinburgh Writers Festival, and I had a giant suitcase because I'd just come off tour in the U- in the US or somewhere. And um, Margaret Atwood was trying, just very patiently, held the door open for me. But I was so flustered. Did at you faint again? <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I was just like I was so sweaty and hot and jet lagged. I just come off like a twelve-hour flight with this massive suitcase, which I'm trying to jimmy into this tiny Edinburgh hotel elevator. And Margaret Atwood's kind of just staring me down, holding the door open. I'm like, sorry, I'm pretty encumbered. <clears throat> <laughs> I just don't remember. I love you. Oh, Oh my god! No, she was just like nodded and then left. And then I also saw her again at that festival eating a mandarin in the green room. And I was just the creep who. That's a great story. Who watched the woman eat the mandarin?
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite um, literary kind of lore is um, a story of Tim Winton eating a banana in the shower in Auckland after a writer's festival tour and just crying with exhaustion as he eats his banana in the shower just like an incredible <laughs> image <laughs> but I do like Margaret Atwood I in was going to say I think I, think I
0: prefer I prefer to watch Margaret Atwood eat it I don't think Mandarin. I want to watch him <laughs> showering
1: and eating banana
0: no either of those things both of those things no yeah. thank you <laughs> Um, So when we're talking about your your history, so now you're primarily known as an author. Your books have been incredibly successful, but you also have a history, which is how both Ronnie and I know you. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, Ronnie goes by Veronica and Ronnie, so everyone has to get used to that. (laughs) Um, is through your amazing work with Kill Your Darlings. So you're the co-founder of Kill Your Darlings. Um, Did you want to talk a little bit about that and how that came about?
2: Yeah, look, Kill Your Darlings has been one of the longer passions of mine in my life. Um, We... It was started in 2009. Um, I, Rebecca and Rebecca Stafford and I we met at Australian Book Review, where I, she was basically my boss. I was the work experience kid, <laughs> and um, and we thought that there was a real there was space for a new journal that would publish early career writers alongside more established writers and would have a particular kind of editorial rigour. And so we just were basically really naive and really enthusiastic and the fact that we were kind of ignorant of a lot of the problems that journals face or just the simple day-to-day problems and difficulties of running a small business, you know, basically meant that we just forged ahead despite a lot of people telling us not to do it. But we were really lucky and we had a lot of support both from writers and other people in the industry early along, which we couldn't have done without. And since that time... um, been publishing a quarterly journal of creative nonfiction, essays, commentary, um, reviews, fiction. Did I say fiction? Uh, interviews, and we've also had a website which course you two have been so wonderfully influential in shaping over the years too but it's really exciting That's reason we got you on you know it's great we st- I feel like in many ways that Rebecca and I started with this you know with this idea which we really didn't have we couldn't really see where it was going to go but along the way we've been so fortunate in having so many people come in and lend their own lend or basically give of their own creative energy and their own originality and enthusiasm and, and certainly hard work and tireless tireless probably mm-hmm. very tiresome actually hours. And um and that's what I think has made KYD such a great success. It's it's not necessarily the idea that we started with, but it's been the accumulated energy that everyone's invested into it. So
1: Yeah, I mean I feel like you've passed that on to other people, which is um our connection. So I was the online editor of KYD until earlier this year. Uh, I think I was assistant online. I don't even know what my role was. was like, yeah. I mean, at some level, you just like, let's just make up names. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys.
0: We just kind of sat down because I started as an intern. And then it was like, oh, this is continuing. This is great. And Estelle Tang and I, she was yeah. the editor and we just ran the site um as well so that's how we know Hannah so I'm very grateful for that opportunity I think it was really excellent
1: oh I mean it was a complete game changer for me certainly like so many things have come out of Kill Your Darling's me and I started out doing the social media which I was so stoked about and now I'm like (laughs) can't think of anything but at the time you know it's like this incredible opportunity when someone says to you do you want to help us with this beautiful thing that people read and are excited by and it's like really i get to be involved with that it's just it's like this whole world opens up and i think so much of that happens in the arts and it happens you know um in publications but also in programming and events and um yeah and and just is a really important pathway because it's such a competitive industry the you know paid positions are so few and far between there are so many incredibly talented well like educated people um and just to have this opportunity to do something is is really special and really powerful. So it's just, I feel like you had the chutzpah to start it and you obviously had the great support, but I feel like it's been repaid um, many times over to all the people who've had, you know, got experiences from it. Yeah, so like official
0: internship is what kind of I have, but then it becomes like an unofficial mentoring thing for your whole Mm. kind of the start of your career or or kind of, I guess, that part of your career. Um, And also it was a really great entry point for me so um, just meeting everyone mm. and kind of like talking and learning what people do and what people like and, and just getting that experience face to face You find you know, your people You find your people That's so the wonderful good people <laughs> Available in all good bookstores <laughs> um,
1: And one thing that I think that does raise is um, something that's really special about Killia Darlings which a lot of journals are not in a position to do which is that you pay your staff
2: mm. um, Not as
1: much as we'd like but But, but you know what that's it's as, for me, it was never really about the money. It's about the recognition of the labour and the recognition of the work and the fact mm. that it is work and that it's we're having a great time and we're producing something that we care about, but we're also putting time and energy and work into it. Um, can you talk about that as a as a decision? And I, I think I'm really interested in, in KYD as a business mm. um, and the, the way that you and Hannah, um, you and Beck, have very much professionalized it. And I think that that's really it's really exciting because it feels. Strong
2: mm. yeah, it's something which is we've spoken so much about I mean my role now with the with the company and will be going forward next year is more just to sort of stay as a director um, and i've I've always sort of overseen the more administrative sort of financial management aspects of the of the of the company um which is it's always a really interesting place to be because the work's not necessarily exciting, but it does in order to do it you're always reminding yourself of the value in recognising people's professional input with financial recompense, basically. Mm. And I think it's a wonderful way of legitimising people's work. I think it's a great way to validate it both for them and also for the wider world, the wider culture. I think it also sets examples. I think when people know that you pay your writers really great rates, and we do. And we have done for many, for many, many years, and we're supported in that with Australian Council and Creative Victoria. But, but even before we had the support, we were always really, really certain that we wanted to pay people for their work mm. because we need. I think you know the argument that Australian artists, particularly writers, aren't aren't paid for their writing or they're expected to do it for the love of it. That's, you know, that argument's been raging for some time, but it has some really, really salient points. And I think that we we have always really tried to do that, to honour the work that our writers do, to honour the time, to try and facilitate their continued development, which requires money because money buys further time to continue improving. And we've always tried to do that with our staff as well because, um, or just with everyone who's really involved with KYD, but it's always, it's always a struggle. It's mm. really, really hard to get additional funding for... To, to pay editors, editors on editorial staff to pay interns to um, so we've always had a huge amount of sort of we've had a huge always had a huge volunteer base but increasingly I think we feel quite empowered in, in very much regarding the killer darlings as a business because we say okay if we can develop new initiatives which brings in greater money, then we can slowly start to ensure that our staff are paid for the huge amount of work that they do. It's hard. It's always, it's it's such a, we've never taken, you know, KYD is not a not-for-profit organisation, but we treat it like one. Mm. Every money, any, any bit of money that goes in, you know, comes into us goes back into investing either in the programs that we do, the sorts of ways that we're engaging with the community, or ensuring that the people who shape KYD are, are being recognised for that mm. work.
1: And yeah, as you say, it's really rife throughout the industry. It's very rare, certainly for journals, to pay their staff because many of them are not making any money. Yeah. Um, but even even once you get into professional ed- professional editing, it's very low paid. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and even um, you know the workforce is predominantly women as well, which I think is. Is really important to remember. Absolutely. Um, can you talk about the new model for Your Darlings and what's happening next year with the shift to online only?
2: Yeah. Well, this was something that we we've been talking. Both Beck and I have been talking about for some time. We've always produced quarterly journals, which are beautiful. They feature the artwork of Guy Shields, who's another artist that we love to support. We feel really honoured to have his work. Um, and yet, we've realised. Over time, and we didn't make this, this isn't a hasty decision at all. That if we were to stop printing the quarterly journal and instead invest solely in the online publication of work, where we have a huge amount of traffic and quite an increasingly, you know, actually quite unbelievably fast, um, you know, quickly growing international audience, that if we focus on that, then we're going to free up so much more time, so much more resources to be able to publish more writers than ever, pay them more than ever, and also pay our staff more. And at the same time, on top of that, do things like the stuff that we're doing, which is announcing two new awards, and we're hoping to increase the number of those as well and have different kinds of initiatives. So we've got an award for new critics, we've got an award for unpublished manuscripts, both fiction and non-fiction, which we're going to open up next year. They're going to include mentorship, cash prize. We just see it as, okay, if we were to hold onto the journal, it would be out of sentimentality, Mm. really. If we can sort of see KYD as this continually evolving beast and we can move with the times and just keep our kind of focus on trying to engage as many readers and writers as possible, then we have to to kind of just focus on the online publication. In terms of
0: focusing on kind of readers and writers, obviously started up by two women coming from... A background um, in a kind of oh, more traditional <laughs> literary publication. <Tread-lazy>. Um, <laughs> did you set out to kind of gender the work, or was that ever kind of part of it? Was it ever, you know, focused? women more than than not or was that
2: just kind of not
0: part of it wasn't supposed to be that political for you
2: it wasn't certainly this the central focus of what we wanted to do but i think it was an inevitable part of both of us being women both of us also really enjoying the work of women um, not necessarily because they are women just because we seem to both of us read a lot of female writers I think it was just um, something that probably started out to be more of an organic thing. And then as awareness increased through things like the Stella Count, we became a little bit more militant about ensuring that we had, you know, a, a whole equal amounts of writers male, equal amounts female, but also, you know, within that, trying to actively seek writers from rural areas as well. Um, so diversity of voices is something that is really important to us. And within that, I think there is also a constant struggle to try and, ensure that we have enough female writers, but also particularly, um, you know, trying to encourage writers to pitch to us. We noticed really early on that all our pitches, about 90% were from men. And sometimes they were really half-baked. Mm-hmm. But obviously we, I think we live in a culture where men feel like they can give it a go and women are much more likely to self-criticise and to kind of hold out until they Ent- feel that something. entitlement ready. comes to mind... You know, I didn't want to spell it out explicitly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think I think that's true and I think we do see that a lot in not necessarily the kinds of work that people are writing but the way in which they engage with literary journals and, mm-hmm. and other other places of publication. And that's something that, yeah, so we've been... Still Tang particularly was really, really... Um, yeah, well, Pitch Bitch is... Exactly. Mm. Thing. Yep. So she really noticed it because we used to have a lot of pictures coming in for online content. So, are you open for pictures now? How, if there are writers listening
0: to this podcast,
2: how does that process
0: work with you? Yeah, yeah,
2: okay. we are open for pictures. Um, we have, if you go to our website, we have and go onto the submission page, we have all the various requirements and. Um, bit a lot of information there about how how to submit your ideas and we're always on the lookout that's the extraordinary yeah. thing it's not that we're ever inundated with pictures and we just think oh god I wish people would leave us a note alone we're always hoping for new voices particularly people who we've never heard from before that's mm. really exciting it's not a bad thing it's a wonderful part of what we do so I would absolutely recommend people get in touch so would I I
0: think yeah. it's both of us we're both part of the old Weddy family and think that you guys do really amazing things still and I'm really excited for the next phase of Gigi Darlings I think I think it's going to be really great. I would also like to stipulate that if you are thinking of pitching, definitely read those guidelines. People yeah. mm-hmm. uh, tend to not, um, mm. and I think that's also a really important lesson to learn. Also, read the journal. Mm. I think that that's the other thing. Um, a lot of those kind of half baked pitches that you were talking about often come from from people who haven't engaged with the text, come along with a
1: Sense of entitlement. They're just like, oh, here's
0: a publication. They pay. Mm. I will give them, and they They
1: send the pitch to twenty different places and have no regard for what any of them are about.
2: It's hilarious. We still receive pitches, which is kind of just end in. And we hope that you and your colleagues at Overland, (laughs) (laughs) you got to change your, you know, (laughs) italicized. But um, but also, you know, I think it's I think it's really really important to um, if you want to write as a vocation, that you be professional, and part of professionalism is reading the reading the journals or the newspapers or whatever sort of content that you want to be published. It's, it's I mean, just why would of... you want
1: to be published somewhere that you don't read? Like, exactly. Who do you think's reading it if you're not reading it and you want to be the, you know, a writer in it? Yeah. It makes no sense.
2: And same goes for, you know, just general email etiquette and not doing crazy or weird things like you know, sending us bizarre stuff in the mail, which we still sometimes get. Or if you get even in the process of working on a piece with editors, not kind of just launching to a diatribe of vitriol if you don't like what's happening and understanding that any kind of editorial That's process one is one of a the conversation. most amazing
0: things I've learned being on the other side of like the writer editor fence, which <laughs> isn't
2: really, I think, a
0: fence. I think it's just kind of a field where you meet and because <laughs> editors are like they're there to make it better for you, yeah. for the reader. They're not there to kind of criticize or say this is wrong. Um, if anything, I love working with editors, particularly when you get good editors, and KYD definitely has those. Um, it's the fact that they're kind of trying to pull the best out of your writing mm. to make it the best piece it possibly can be. Like, yeah, they're in no... your corner. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a lot of the time, um, when ego is involved, and obviously ego mm. is involved in in um writing, just in in general, like sending off a pitch to an editor is not a not scary thing. Yeah. Um but it's kind of like with your second book coming along, you were saying, you know, the blank page, the anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety around this kind of part of the arts, but um, everyone feels it and it's kind of try and shove your ego away and and try, I Mm. guess. Everyone's there to help you out. Um, We wanted to do a bit of a shout-out where Hannah, you as our guest, will chat (laughs) with us about something that you think you've could be of interest of the audience. So often Australians, sometimes with broader reach, but off always for the broads. So you've
2: just come back from Ubud Writers Festival. Yeah, which was my first time to this amazing festival. I, I think it's a, it was the most diverse festival I've ever been to. Um, I loved it. And I got – what I really love about writers' festivals anyway, both, you know, attending as a punter and also, you know, when I'm very fortunate, able to go as, as a guest writer, is – not necessarily seeing the people that I already know of speak and hearing more about their work, although that's always really wonderful, but it's about hearing those new voices and being exposed to writers and poets that you would never otherwise really encounter. And one, someone who I'm still kind of reeling after hearing speak is uh, Emi Mahmud, who is a writer, US writer, originally born in Sudan and Darfur. Uh, immigrated with her parents, who is currently, I think, the Individual World Poetry Slam winner. She's 22. She's at an Ivy League Holy college molly. studying, like, oh a, a bunch of crazy, difficult subjects. And I heard her speak. I, I went along to a session that was supposed to be a panel session, Daughters of the Diaspora. And instead, I think, because of various travel conflicts, she was the only person there. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, And it was wonderful. So it was this incredibly intimate discussion of her poetry, um, how she came to write um, performance poetry, spoken. And word poetry and then she wasn't actually going to perform but because it was such a wonderful space and the atmosphere was really intimate and trusting she ended up getting up and performing two poems and there wasn't a dry eye in mm. the house it was incredible and you can there's a lot of her stuff up on YouTube Emmy Mahmood I, we'll I encourage everyone power. to yeah, go and check her out definitely it sounds amazing she's going places like 22 and to be able to have accomplished
0: even everything 22 and being on a panel. 22 and being the only person on a multi-person panel show up <laughs> and then managing to make everyone cry with your work? Like, that just sounds like such an overwhelmingly... Uh, like, an uh, overwhelming achievement. She's amazing. Like, she is amazing. I can't wait to check them out. Now, listen to
1: me. Now, listen to me. Now, listen to me.
0: Frontier psychiatry. Frontier. I give
1: myself very good advice but i very seldom follow it you don't need to be helped any longer
2: you've always had the power to go back to cancer frontier psychiatry
0: Arrogant aunt segment is where we pretend to answer your questions with authority we just don't have. It's basically an exercise in overcoming imposter syndrome for all of us including us in the room right now. So, you if you're listening to this right now, you can definitely send us more questions. We're happy to kind of get them on a rolling basis. We will send out our details at the end. So the first one definitely links with what this segment is about but also what we've been talking about kind of the whole this whole episode um it's about kind of anxiety and doing too much so Hannah obviously you're you've been involved in KYD as a company kind of general manager money but also editorial you're a writer you're traveling around promoting books you're doing all these things um how do you not burn out like how do you keep (laughs) keeping on when like you were saying earlier there's some anxiety about not really believing that you're even doing a good job like I think you were self-deprecating when you're like oh I've got my friends and family around me and they make me feel supported and they say things that encourage me even if I know they're lying which in <laughs> itself is like yeah clearly they're not lying you're incredibly successful and you're an amazing writer but you still have this like deep-seated
2: yeah I don't think anxiety. of myself like that though I mean anxiety is something you know I think it was T.S. Eliot who said fear is the handmaiden of creativity And fear and associated anxiety is something that um, has been pretty much a constant for me. Um, I've been diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder before. I had a period around actually when burial rites was coming out, which was supposed to be kind of a really joyous time, and I just kind of flipped out and had that really debilitating debilitating anxiety where I just felt like I couldn't trust anything that was going through my head. And then I came to, got into that cycle of almost relying on anxiety because if I worry about it, then it's going to be okay, but it's not going to be okay, so I've got to worry about it some more. um and that's and that's always been a very much a, a part something which has come from Producing, like I said before, things which haven't been there before, not knowing and putting them into a public arena and not knowing how people are going to judge them and maybe judge you. So for me, dealing with anxiety and dealing with, um, what is it, the, the Amanda Palmer has this great word that she uses. It's the idea that this particular kind of like arts police are going to come knock on your door and say, sorry, we have a fucking mistake and you don't know what you're doing. We're going to come lock you up, you know, how dare you try and get away with this. And it's this feeling that you're getting away with something. That's that's still very much um, current for me but I don't necessarily see it as a as a bad thing I think for one it, it keeps me pretty grounded about my work it, it ensures if I can harness it in the correct way it doesn't paralyze me or stop me from working it makes me want to do better um, but that I think takes a lot of sort of very conscious negotiation in your mental space and trying Absolutely. to also have the support from your family who say it is in your head you know maybe just keep going um, so for me in terms of trying to not burn out and negotiate anxiety and keep on producing work. For me, it is about acknowledging, not trying to get rid of fear, not trying to get rid of anxiety, but finding a tiny place for it, but not letting it have any control over what it is that I do. Just acknowledging that it's there, that it's part of the process, and then trying to ignore it. Which is like a cognitive behavioural approach to anxiety, mm. just as a bit yeah. in a bigger sense.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. I suffer from generalised anxiety. I'm medicated, um, which is not a not public thing. I've said it quite a few times. Um, and... I actually suffer from burnout quite a bit. Um, I obviously haven't had the success that you have had, but I do little bits and pieces and then I kind of flatline and I need to disappear for a little bit. Mm. Um, and people in my life are aware of that. doesn't make me hate myself any less. doesn't make me think I'm any better at things, but um, it's kind of the cycle, right? You come yeah. through and then you, you get the energy again. Um, and I like I, I, I wish I was healthier at this kind of stuff and I wish I was better and more well managed with my time Um, but one thing I do appreciate is talking about it with the likes of you guys with people over drinks with people in my life um, I think that for a very long time there was stigma around kind of the anxiety and imposter syndrome whether it is basic at a kind of occupational level or whether it is like a mental health concern people didn't talk about it you didn't want to show any failings or or jack like but i think the fact that it is a, a bigger open dialogue now is really important and there's something to say of hearing that other people who are successful do suffer the same things not that it's great not that you should have found anyone but i think that talking about it is really definitely a helpful thing um I would like to recommend exercise and eating well and doing I that stuff right? but <laughs> yeah I people been, tell me that yeah, that yeah, really yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been you know trying but that's the kind of thing like you get anxious about this this stuff so um I am trying to do the pilates and all the the good brain things but um often beer is way easier but mm. again vicious cycle so
2: Yeah, I don't really have an answer other than talking and listening. And I think think, that's really important. But I think it's really powerful to know that you're not alone in this. And that it's, you know, incredibly common. It doesn't mark you out in any particular way. It doesn't mean that you're incompetent in any way. It just means that, you know, you're probably just a really sensitive person. Like I think a lot of people who have anxiety are... And that's fine, and that's not gonna necessarily impact on your creative process. But I think, like you said, knowing when you need that quiet time, know when you are when you are at risk of burnout, or your anxiety is gonna sort of escalate to something which might be less manageable, and recognizing that you need your space, you Absolutely. know, you need your downtime, or your little furry friends. It's okay, okay to say great. no. Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. Yes. To, again, something. Yeah. That's yeah. a whole
0: other podcast. <laughs> okay. my, I feel like my dogs are my therapy. Yeah. So almost, it's all my pets.
1: Sure. Um, mm-hmm what about you, Ronnie? What is your response to burnout and I mean, I taking too much on? I mean, the second part of that question is the one that resonates with me the most, which is taking too many things on and, and trying to juggle lots of different stuff. And well, so, yeah,
0: the ability to say no is a thing that yes. women also don't do very often. Mm. Yes,
1: like- women and also in the arts, when everyone's, everyone's doing a bazillion things, everyone's doing volunteer work, it, it feels like everyone's, you know, 20 years old and running a magazine and it's just it, – it, it feels like everyone else is doing it all and it's like, well, if I don't say yes to this thing, I'm going to fall behind and no one's going to ever ask me to do anything again and I'm going to miss this opportunity the one time that it came around. And so for me, figuring out that that was not the case was really, really important for, because for a long time I was saying yes to everything um, and it was not sustainable in any way. Mm. Um, and, the and you know, that was, was work, it was um, my personal writing, it was uni, it was KYD – volunteer work, um, and sort of figuring out that I had to set for myself a hierarchy of what was important and figure out how to prioritise and stick to that no matter what. So like I was like, you know what, my job has to be number one because that's how I pay my rent. And if I can't keep that going, then I'm really screwed. And then, you know, other things might fluctuate around in there and uni's never as high as it should be. But um, just having a kind of system for myself about knowing what I value and what mm. I need to prioritise really, really helps. Um, So that's the main thing for me is just, like, figuring out... I don't even write it down. It's just in my head. Oh, really?
2: Yeah. Oh, I've mm. got lists everywhere. I'm a crazy <laughs> yeah. list person. Me too. I'm a crazy list person. I have to have my lists. But I recently also heard this thing, which I've just started doing, because I find it really hard to say no to stuff. I'm getting better at it because I realize that I'm actually letting people down more when I can't do the mm. stuff that I've committed to. So easy just to say no in the first place. But also, um, someone recently said that if you wouldn't be able to fit in time to do it next week, don't do it. Mm. Unless it's something that you really, really want to do. But if it's just a request that someone's putting in, whether it's an appearance a speech or to write an endorsement or anything like this, if you can't, if you wouldn't be able to find time with it within the next two weeks, you're not going to be any more free six months down the track. Mm. And that's been a pretty powerful <laughs> reminder yeah, to me to be able to like, say no. and I
0: think it's like reconciling the, the idea that you can't say no without the guilt it's like yeah. you're not going to offer them exactly what they want so step back say no works out better for everyone absolutely in the yeah. well we are so glad you said yes to come into the first episode of Sisteria. Mm. thank you so much hannah thank you
1: for having this me thank really you hannah fun. it's been fantastic and Yay. it's just really nice to catch up with hannah well. i'm <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to see you guys again <laughs>
0: Sisteria is created by women, for women, but also anyone who wants to listen, really. We'll be offering links to all the stories we've talked about on our website, SisteriaPodcast.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at sisteriapod. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. We're supported by Creative Victoria in partnership between the Melbourne Agency and Kathleen Syme Library. Our incredible theme music is by the amazing Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and it's available on her brand new record spacings. Thanks for listening.